Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Everybody's making fun of Woj this morning, but I won't do it. The NBA restart has been moved one day earlier. To July 30th, the replies to the Woj tweet announcing that the NBA is hoping to come back on the 30th instead of the 31st are absolutely hilarious. People really don't care at all. I do, because it just went from seven weeks and one day to seven weeks and zero days. Yeah, baby. 49 days. Knocking one off the border there. We got 2% closer. So laugh all you want. We got 2% closer to having the NBA come back. Damn right. This is Fantasy NBA Today. That's the name of this podcast. I'm Dan Bespris. That's the name of the host of this podcast. At Dan Bespris on Twitter. D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Whatever. You guys all already follow me anyway. Starting to come up with some ideas on what to do as the league resumes, mentioned on a previous show or two, that there will likely be Roto Leagues coming back. There will likely be Points Leagues coming back for those eight games. We call it like a little three-week sprint. Call it a fantasy sprint. We'll be having podcasts about that. We'll be having items available at HoopBall. And I'll tell you, here's the little whisper a little look behind the scenes. I'm going to get down real quiet here on the pod, so make sure that your volume is adjusted appropriately. But I have on good authority that Aaron Bruski himself is working on projections for the eight-day sprint. Don't know exactly what's going to uh, take place with those bad boys, but what I do know is that they're going to be good. And I'm going to want to see them because this is pretty weird. The NBA coming back for an eight-day sprint. Then playoffs. We'll talk about that later on. Playoff leagues. Today, two things to talk about. One of them we basically already did. The NBA is coming back a day earlier. Although, in sort of a adjunct piece of news, the NBA has also released word that players can opt out of returning to Orlando to play, which there were these weird stories bubbling up yesterday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, about some players not wanting to come back. And so you knew there was going to be some kind of response to that. Either it was going to be a non-response, which is just doing nothing and then hoping the story goes away, or 
a doing something response, which is what we've seen now, that the NBA plans to allow replacement players for those who test positive for COVID or have injuries or for players that decide they don't want to participate. The players that get replaced cannot come back. So it's almost like a disabled list in baseball. The NBA doesn't generally have that during the regular season. They can move guys on and off their roster, but there are actual limits. What this does basically is it says, look, if you have, you know, your seventh, eighth guy come down with COVID, I mean, it could even be your superstar if they're likely going to miss two weeks and that's basically all that the season is going to be. You sub them out, you go put them in quarantine for 14 days, you bring up a replacement player from your AAA squad, effectively. They play out the remainder of the season, and then you set your playoff roster. Playoff roster is different than the regular season roster. So this is effectively like having a disabled list in the NBA. And then the other note on players opting out, not that unreasonable. There are players who have congenital issues. Like, I wouldn't be at all surprised if JaVale McGee didn't play. He has asthma. Pneumonia almost killed him last year. He was out for a long time, and he wasn't himself for months after that. He'll probably play because I think he wants to win a championship and, you know, LeBron's Lakers and all that stuff. But honestly, someone that has made a a decent chunk of money in his career, he's not like one of the guys in the NBA that's rolled up $200 million, but JaVale McGee has done fine for himself. He's making $4 million this year, and, you know, he had seasons early in his career where he made $10 million with the Nuggets and the Sixers. I don't know what his total's at. He's made like $50 million in his NBA career. That's not nothing, man. $50 million. You gave me $50 million, I'd be fine for the rest of my life. teammates wouldn't like him that's going to always be pressure against somebody saying I don't feel comfortable but I think they'd ultimately respect whatever decision someone like that made now again I don't think he's going to make that decision I think he's probably going to play but just looking at some of the guys in the NBA we know about his asthma I'm sure there are some players in the NBA that have other underlying conditions we don't know about I don't know what they might be heart issues lung issues diabetes all these little things There were reports about how diabetics are extremely susceptible to severe outcomes in COVID cases. So we'll see. I'm betting there will be just a couple. They probably won't be big-name guys, but you never know. Uh, Nice of the NBA to allow that. They should, and they did. And then adding in this sort of disabled list function is a reasonable way to say, look, you know, if you lose a player and they're just out, listen, this is the best we can do right now. We can't pause the league for two weeks because this could happen to multiple teams. What if you lose three or four guys at the same time? You wouldn't even be able to field a roster if we didn't give you a DL. So it makes sense. Nothing is perfect. Ultimately, nothing is perfect. These are all just stopgap solutions. And that's all we need. Because presumably... Well, I guess, man, that still sort of hangs in the balance. If next season really does start towards the beginning of December, most of the experts expect a vaccine early in 2021. I also don't think, and listen, I'm not an expert on this, so I don't know, 
But I also don't think that we've ever seen the world running into this kind of obstacle altogether, at least not in a century, not since we've had this level of technology. So things are going to get rushed. You're probably going to have a vaccine earlier than the experts originally predicted. You know, when this thing started in February, March, everybody was like, ah, vaccines take a year, year and a half. I don't think the world allows that to happen. I think you'll see, and they might not be the world's best vaccines either. They might not be as effective as ones that do come out a year and a half after the whole thing started. But I bet you see something sooner than that. So maybe that changes the way things look. But you might actually see this stopgap DL type situation trickle into next year. Like this might be something that the NBA just implements as long as COVID is without a highly effective treatment. But I'll be honest, I don't know. That's just, it's surmising at this point. It's surmising based on a little bit of feel, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of reading, and then the fact that know what we've seen so far i guess that trickles back into feel today we finish up our post-mortem series by the way this is a hoop ball presentation not sure if i mentioned that and also go check out our hoop ball instagram page it's back it's funky fresh every promo i do for our hoop ball instagram i'm going to try to sound older than i did doing the previous promo all the kids are doing it <laughs> Oh, Lord. It's Hoopball Official on Instagram. I remember uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I signed up for a Twitter account, and I thought, I'm never going to figure this out. I think I have a pretty good handle on Twitter now. And the shame is, you know, that I was in my 20s 11 years ago. Not anymore. Yeesh. By the time I figure out Instagram, I'm going to be 45, and... By the time I figure out Snapchat or TikTok, I'm going to be 52. So it's time for me to give it up, I think. But you shouldn't. Hoopball official on Instagram. Check it out now. Follow it up. Uh, the great tandem, William and Lyle. Those guys are running the Instagram account and doing a wonderful job so far. So again, that's Hoopball official on Instagram. Uh, big thank you to our live pros once again for hosting the Hoopball expansion draft series. The fifth episode was last night. William, Doug, and Santino. Broke down the Lakers, the Heat, the Wolves, and the Pelicans. And over in our team coverage department, we had some new episodes airing yesterday. The Hoopball Kings podcast, the great Damian Barling, had Aaron Bruski, our own Aaron Bruski, on the podcast to talk Kings basketball. It's been a tumultuous year or a tumultuous week and a half for Kings media, but they get into some of the uh, actual team stuff as well. Uh, Lyle, I mentioned yesterday, a new Hoopball Pelicans episode with uh, Shamit Dua over at uh, Bourbon Street Shots. Just good stuff going on all, the, all around. Hoopball does not quit. Uh, new episode of Hoopball Gaming coming shortly as well. Ira talked to, I believe, Lyle. This dude's been busy, man. About uh, Aussie Rules Football. Aussie. I've been told I need to pronounce it with a Z, not Aussie. It's Aussie. My best friend from high school married an Aussie. She corrected me quickly. Said, nah, man, that's a hard Z, which is the opposite, oddly, of my last name. 
A lot of people pronounce it Besbris, but it's Besbris. Soft sounds. Just like my personality. Soft and pillowy. The New York Knicks, the last team on the docket here. We finish up our post-mortem series. Uh, tomorrow we will begin our analysis of what I call the how did they do comparing big box sites preseason rankings to how players finished up and allows us to get a better feel for where we should veer in drafts the next year. And it's all somewhat of a sample size thing, but it does give us kind of a nice idea of how sites were doing, how we can expect them to do, and just generally how people in general can do with this stuff. But today, the New York Knicks. <sighs> yeah, you know, I put it off as long as I could, folks. So don't give me too much of a hard time. The New York Knicks are the last team we're going to cover on our post-mortem series, and for good reason. They were not that fun from a fantasy standpoint. Mitchell Robinson was, of course, a massive hype player coming into the 2019-2020 campaign. Our good buddy Bogman over at In This League almost turned himself, I mean, he laughed about it. He kind of turned himself into a little bit of a caricature in that, in a mock draft, he took Mitch Robb at like 13 and then laughed about it. And he said, no, there's no way I would do that if it was a real draft. But this was a guy that was going pretty early. This was a guy that was going pretty dang early. Earlier than folks expected, certainly. And then, and, and you know, therein lies the issue. There were a lot of question marks hanging around his name. It's why one of the things we have to do as a fantasy community is understand the difference between hype, post-hype, and pre-hype. Last season, Mitchell Robinson was pre-hype. He was picking it up. He was able to do stuff in 17, 18, 19 minutes a game. When you got those few games towards the end of the year where his minutes actually trended up, he became a monster. And then he became a hype guy as we saw going into this year. And again, I, you know, I know what Bogman was doing was, was to have a little bit of fun, but it did help illuminate how high he was going. The way folks were talking about him all across the board. And I think even our good buddy Boggs was like <laughs> off air. It's like, no, no chance I'd draft him. Actually, that was on air. No chance I'd actually draft him at 13. But what it did was it highlighted the type of guy that all people, we're looking at and going, how high can this dude go? When all was said and done, he didn't go, you know, in the first round. But Mitchell Robinson's ADP was 30, which is crazy because what we had talked about the previous year was that when everything was going great for him, he could get near the top 20. If you're taking him at 30, you've wiped out any wiggle room. There's no margin for error. And what we saw was that there was some error. He averaged 23 minutes a game this year. And I don't know if there was... I mean, there were some little nagging injuries involved, but he played in 61 of their games, so it's not like he was badly bruised. Averaged 10 points, 7 boards, on 74% shooting, with .9 steals and 2 blocks a game. That is a lower block total in 23 minutes than I think folks expected from Mitch Robb, given just the trajectory. He averaged 2.4 blocks in 20 minutes a game last year. So to see it go down in two and a half more minutes per ball game was, I think, eye-opening. But that's that happens sometimes. As guys play more, 
and as guys try to avoid foul trouble and maybe playing in most of the team's games, having a larger role, they take a toll on a player a little bit. Does that now mean that Mitchell Robinson has entered the realm of the post-hype? Well, he was number 54 on a per-game basis in nine category leagues this year. I've said a lot of things to disparage the way his season's gone, but top 55 was actually a pretty damn good year. And by totals, because he played in 61 games, he was actually number 34. So he wasn't that far off of his 30 ADP by totals. Of course, most of us that are are generally looking at averages because totals can be a little bit deceiving when guys pile up a ton of games. But hey, 61 games at two blocks a game is still over 120 blocks. Also, he had 0.6 turnovers per ball game as well. So it didn't hurt you even a tiny bit in that department, which again, more important in Roto, that particular category, than nine category head-to-head because, you know, generally you're trying to win the games battle in head-to-head leagues. You want to outgame your opponent, and in that instance, you you put yourself at a disadvantage in turnovers anyway. Okay, so Mitch Robb was going near 30 this year, which was, frankly, too high. Finished at 54 on a per-game basis, and I think people were generally kind of annoyed with him, which is a shame because he wasn't that bad. He was actually number 42 over there the next final 20 games this year, 9.5, 7.7, 2.3 blocks, so you know, trending up just a little bit there. This is a guy that if he falls back towards that 50 range, he becomes a no-brainer. He showed durability. He showed elite field goal percent and blocks. And he's just going to get a little bit better year over year. Not to mention the fact that the Knicks signed basically every center and power forward in the NBA to short-term deals this last offseason for what reason exactly? It's not clear. I thought maybe they'd be selling guys off. They ended up mostly just <laughs> dumping guys as the season went along. But they had they signed Bobby Portis. They signed Marcus Morris. They signed Taj Gibson. They signed Julius Randle. That's idiotic. They've had a change at the top, which is another reason for optimism in New York. They've, they've, I don't know that things are going to get better. And, you know, if they bring in Tom Thibodeau, who knows what that would potentially do to a team's makeup. And not all of these guys are off contract yet, lest we forget. Some of them were signed to one year deals with options built in. For instance, Bobby Portis has a $15 million team option for next year. My guess is they probably let that expire and send him back into free agency. I don't think they're going to pay Portis, who's basically a scoring backup big $15.5 million next year. That feels like it feels like kind of a bad idea. Uh, but who knows? And so then you've got Julius Randle, who is someone that they were more excited to kind of build around a little bit. So presumably he will still be part of whatever it is they're doing there. They've got him signed for two more years at about $19 million a season. I don't think they're going to be trying to move him. I think it'd be honestly kind of difficult to move him, but who the hell knows? So assume he's probably going to be there. And then uh, Taj Gibson is sort of your (laughs) 
another another additional big man. Marcus Morris is gone, by the way. They they picked up Mo Harkless. If you want to pick, I'll pick up in that deal. Uh, Gibson does have an option on next year at uh, nine and a half million dollars. I believe that contract becomes fully guaranteed later this month, or maybe one million of it. I forget, but I'd be pretty surprised if they wanted to pay him $10 million for next year also. Right? I mean, we just have to assume that teams are going to be trying to hold on to money wherever they can. Although, I don't I think his deal was a two-year deal. I don't know if they can get out of it. I think he can get waived. Yeah, okay, figured this out. He can get waived midway through this month, June, and then they'd only owe him $1 million for next year. So they could save $8.5 million. I, again, it would really surprise me if they wanted to pay Tosh Gibson $9.5 million next year, but crazier things have happened. Regardless, point is, there's a chance that one or maybe even two Knicks big men come off the books, which only frees up more front court time for a guy that was destined to get squeezed this year. Julius Randle played 33 and a half minutes per game. Tosh Gibson averaged 17 minutes a game. Bobby Portis was at 21. If both of those guys come off the books, if they don't bring back Portis or Gibson, excuse me, I think I got my numbers a tiny bit off the mark there. Tosh, uh, Bobby Portis was at 21. Tosh Gibson, 16 and a half. So it's still right around 37, 37 and a half minutes between those two guys. That's 37, roughly, minutes between those two dudes. That's about 14 shots per game between those two dudes. That's about nine and a half rebounds a game between those two dudes. Some of that, not all, some of that would go to Mitchell Robinson. Maybe they only bring back one of those two guys. Maybe they bring back Taj Gibson as a veteran leader off the bench, and he plays his 17 minutes, and Mitchell Robinson gets 30 next year. This feels like your prototypical post-hype scenario. Why are we spending so much time on Mitchell Robinson? Well, frankly, the rest of the Knicks are atrocious. They were horrible this year. Reality and fantasy. Doesn't matter what direction you look at him from. Whatever prism you pick up, the rest of that team was awful. Mitchell Robinson was the only Nick inside the top 120. Yeesh. On a per-game basis this year. We will talk about Julius Randle. Fear not. I mean, not going to just ignore these other guys, but the reason we're so laser-focused on Mitchell Robinson is that everybody, there was an expectation that he would make this colossal flying leap this year from last season, where, by the way, Mitchell Robinson in 21 minutes a game last year was right around top 50. So his rank didn't really change, even though his minutes did trend up. The expectation was that he would improve. He would go from top 50 to top 40 or top 30 this year. Presumably top 30, since that's where he was getting drafted. It didn't happen. People are going to be disappointed by this, even though they probably shouldn't be. They should look at it and say, okay, well, look, this is a kid who's still learning how to play, learning how to avoid foul trouble, can't just try to block everything all the time. You get caught with your pants down too often in that instance. But his offensive game improved. His rebounding was still fine. His field goal percent is insanely good. There's still room for growth, and if they don't put five roadblocks in his way again next year, now you've got your post-hype season. After the year where he let people down, 
Maybe he drops. Maybe his ADP isn't in 30. Maybe it isn't 30 this coming year. Maybe it's 40 or 45. I'd take Mitchell Robinson late in the fourth, early in the fifth round. Absolutely. If they don't bring in a starting caliber center, 50-55 is his floor. That's the floor. That's about as bad as it could possibly get next year, meaning his window of success is anywhere from top 15 to top 60. So if he's going at like 40 or 45, there's way more room above than below. I think Mitchell Robinson is going to be a really interesting pick next year. I'm laser-focused on his ADP and what the post-type scenario might be for him. Maybe people still go nuts, but I saw a lot of folks that were trying to get out from under Mitchell Robinson this year, and, and that, to me, usually means someone had a bad taste left in their mouth. The next highest-ranked player on this, we're really only going to talk about like three guys on today's show on New York because they were so brutally horrible. Uh, the next highest-ranked guy on the Knicks was one of my least favorite players in fantasy, and that's Alfred Payton, who finished at number 125 on the year. 10 points, just under 5 rebounds, about 7 assists, 1.6 steals, 44% from the field, 57% at the free-throw line. He's your prototypical two-category specialist with a bunch of deficiencies. Free throw percent hurts you. Field goal percent hurts you. Turnovers tends to hurt you. Three-pointers definitely hurts you from the point guard spot. Scoring hurts you. Now that said, when the reins were turned over to Peyton, he was hanging out just inside the top 100. Over the team's final 20 games, he was number 95 on 11.5 points, 5.5 rebounds, 9 assists, 1.6 steals, 46% shooting, and 59% at the free throw line. So he still had the same deficiencies, but he was able to do just enough in the other categories. The assists ticked up to a robust nine. I mean, that's a big number there. 1.6 steals is really good. 46% from the field doesn't hurt you as much. The free throws are a pretty big knock. The three-pointers are a big knock. Turnovers are going to get you. I don't exactly know what the Knicks' plan is to deal with the point guard spot, because this year they rotated three point guards in and out of their lineup, ultimately settling on Alfred Payton as the one that seemingly had the best grasp on it. Dennis Smith Jr. uh, continues to not be good. He was ranked number 426 this year in 34 ball games. Just not good. Was he supposed to be the prize in the Kristaps Porzingis trade? Oh, boy. I mean, we've talked about it before. He's just not... He's not good. Remember the preseason hype that some of the big box sites threw at that dude? Yuck. Vomitous. So Alfred Payton won the job, to his credit. They were better. The Knicks were markedly better when he was on the floor, which is saying something because, you know, I clobber him regularly. From a fantasy standpoint, he's a very difficult player to roster. From a reality standpoint, he did actually make the team better, and he's under contract next year for $8 million. He does have a non-guaranteed second half of his year, but I think the Knicks might pay Peyton $8 million. That's not that over-the-top expensive for a guy that could very well end up being their starting point guard playing 30 minutes a game. If he's going to play 30 minutes a game, he deserves a late-round look. Like I said, he was just inside the top 100 
while playing 30 and a half minutes a game over the team's final 20 contests this year. And if he comes into next season with that job, that's probably where he ends up. Right around 90 because of the massive deficiencies. But starting point guards don't grow on trees, especially not ones that actually can get you nine assists. You just have to make sure your big men can shoot free throws because if you pair a free throw punt big man on a team with Alfred Payton, you're going to have a tough time coming back from that. Where do I think he's going to get drafted? I don't honestly know. I don't rightly know because Alfred Payton was one of those guys that I got yelled at on Twitter all the time for saying, look, I just, I know he's probably worth rostering right now, but I just don't like his fantasy game. I just don't like guys that are great at two things, but also really bad at three or four things. I know we've talked about how specialists do have appeal, but they have to be specialists that aren't killing you in other categories. Example is probably someone like a Chris Dunn, who finished at 88 this year, despite the fact, you know, listen, he was only great at one category, he averaged two steals a game, but he was really only truly bad at one category, and that was scoring. He didn't kill you in anything else. Field goal and free throw weren't good, but he wasn't taking any of them. He was hitting .6 three-pointers a game, which, believe it or not, is better than Alfred Payton was. And this is the thing. If Payton was just mediocre in, say, free throw percent instead of bad, he'd be an easy top 100 guy. But he's actually bad at it. He's actually bad at it. And he turns the ball over, and he doesn't hit any three-pointers, and his field goal percent is usually also bad. So there's just... It's limited upside if you have multiple anchors weighing you down, even if you have two categories you're quite good at. The magic of nine categories, there are more of them than just the two that look juicy. The problem with a guy like Alfred Payton is that if you average nine assists, someone's going to take notice. People love it because he gets nine assists. He gets more, He's frequently overvalued. Because of popcorn stats, because he's a good rebounding and assisting point guard, he tends to go in drafts earlier than he should. This year, he finally didn't, and then he overperformed. I really don't know where he's going to get drafted next year. He finished, again, outside the top 120 for the season, missed a bunch of games with injury, and yet something tells me he's going to get drafted in the 90s. Maybe earlier next year because people love seeing nine assists next to his name. All right, fine. We'll talk about my least favorite pick in all of fantasy sports this year, and that was Julius Randle. Because, look, look at, listen to the rest of this roster. Mo Harkless, Bobby Portis, Frank Nilakina, Reggie Bullock. Sorry, it's Bullock. Taj Gibson, Damian Dodson, R.J. Barrett, Wayne Ellington, Kevin Knox, Alonzo Trier, Dennis Smith Jr., the highest-ranked player among those guys was Mo Harkless at 220, and that was largely because he got some starts with the Clippers when Paul George was out. Bobby Portis, 229. Nilakina, 248. Bullock, 251. I mean, nobody was close. R.J. Barrett averaged 14 points, five boards, three assists, and a steal, and was outside the top 300. Not close. So we're just focusing on three main guys. On today's Knicks breakdown, big breakdown on Mitchell Robinson because, man, I'm hoping he turns into be that that brilliant post-type guy. I am desperately hoping that he falls enough. Do 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 do. That could be that could be really something. 
Okay, but Julius Randle. All right, 137 was the final ranking, and that was far better than the way things began because over the team's final 25 games this year, Julius Randle was actually inside the top 100. He was number 99. Score. Listen to this crazy fantasy stat line. 20.5 points, 10.5 rebounds, 3 assists, a steal, half a block, 47% from the field, 77.5% at the free throw line, but 3.2 turnovers. It boggles the mind that somebody averaging 20, 10, and 3 with a steal on okay percentages was still right around the edge of the top 100. But such is the limitations on the game. The rebounding was very good at 10.5. The scoring was very good at 20.5. Three-pointers were low, but who cares? It's a a forward. It's a power forward. Steals were fine. I mean, 0.9 from a power forward, that's fine. Half a block, low for a front-court man, but he's not alone in this day and age. He did bounce back. I'm not going to pick on Julius Randle because he played better the second half of the season, but he was unusable the first half of the year. He was unusable. He was hovering near the edge of the top 200 because he was shooting like 42% on this high-volume crap. He's another guy where... Number one, I don't really know where he's going to get drafted. When you think about Julius Randle, because he also, like Alfred Payton, has loud popcorn stats. Payton, it's rebounding and assisting from a guard spot. For Randle, it's scoring and rebounding from a forward spot. And, to some small degree assists as well the fact that a power forward is right around league average and assists that's a good thing because generally that's a number that's pulled up by the point guards of the nba if you're getting three out of your power forward that means those big guy spots aren't dragging you down and the guards getting four five six seven or eight they're actually elevating your number so three is actually good there for a power forward so people take notice people take notice of a guy like that julius randall went Pretty darn early this year. Believe me, I know. I got sucked into it that one time like a butthole. Not that I got sucked into a butthole, that I felt like a butthole for getting bamboozled. His ADP was right around 60. I think there was an expectation that he would improve over what he had done the previous year when he was playing alongside competent basketball players. In New Orleans, he played 30 and a half minutes a game, averaged 21 and a half points, nine rebounds on 52 and a half percent shooting from the field. 73 at the free throw line, three assists, 1.3 combined steals and blocks. I mean, everything pointed to the fact that he was going to go to New York and his usage was going to go through the roof and he was just going to pile up counting stats and everything else be damned. But he went to New York, his field goal percent plummeted presumably because he had no one good around him. He actually took fewer free throws than the previous year as he moved slightly farther away from the bucket. His rebounding went up because, you know, Anthony Davis wasn't next to him. But then everything else stayed mostly the same. So it's just this big drop-off in field goal percent, more or less. But because he still scored 20 points this year and got 10 rebounds, it's hard to be a 20-10 guy that falls in fantasy drafts. Like, do we really think there's any way that Julius Randle falls towards the edge of the top 100 if this Knicks team doesn't make a seismic change in their front court? No, he's Julius Randle. He still went for 20-10. and 10. 
people are still going to look at him and go, oh, 2010 guy, I need to take that inside the top 75. I don't think, despite the fact that his season by all accounts was a a hot diaper full, I think he still goes pretty early for his for his uh, target, I should say. Not early, early. He's not going to go at 50 or 60 again after a big down season. But I, to me, I don't think you see his AD, ADP drop more than maybe 10 to 15 slots max, even though he ended up 60 slots beneath his ADP by averages. Yeah, I know, I know. He played in 64 games, so by totals, you got something good. But it's that same, it's the Sadoransky effect. He was top 120-something. He played in every single game his team had. I think he missed, what, one, maybe two? And so he's inside the top 100 by totals. But, I, I mean, I don't want a top 125, 130 guy playing 64 games for my team. I want my top 50 guys playing 64 games. And my 120 guys, I want them filling in when I literally have nothing else I can use on my fantasy team. So, by all traditional measures, Julius Randle should be a post-hype guy next year. But, from the eye test... From what we know about his particular fantasy game and how that type of game appeals to the fantasy public, I don't think he takes much of a hit. You are very reasonable if the next thing you said was, but Dan, you said, what if Mitchell Robinson's ADP falls from 30 to 40 or 45, you would be excited, but if Julius Randle's falls 10 to 15 slots, you wouldn't be. Why the difference? Well... Two reasons. Number one, the change in value between the number 30 player, which is, again, Mitch Robinson's ADP, and the number 40 player is about a tenth of a value point, as it were. If you're looking over at Basketball Monster, the the p-value, it's about a tenth. The difference between 60 and 70 is about half of that. Those players are much more bunched together. So if Mitchell Robinson drops around, if he goes from being a mid-third rounder to a mid-late fourth rounder or even an early fifth rounder, that's a much bigger deal than Julius Randle going from being a end of fifth, early sixth to end of sixth, early seventh. The value between those players is much tighter than the value between the guys closer to the top of the board. Also, I think Mitchell Robinson has a higher floor. I think his floor was basically what he did this year. We saw from Julius Randle, his floor is lower than what he did this year. His floor was what he was doing for part of the year. And even when he was performing admirably towards the end of the season, that was still behind his ADP by a lot. If you're looking at these two guys, We'll look at it. We'll present it one more way. Mitchell Robinson, first half of his year was, what, top 65, top 70? Second half of his year was closer to top 40, top 45. Averaged out to just behind 50. By the way, we know his ceiling can go higher than that. If he played an entire season at around top 40 per game value, he would have easily hit his top 30 totals ADP. Easy. For Julius Randle, even when he was playing well, his ADP, remember, was 60, 61 last year. This year. Sorry, it was last year. It was 2019, but it's this season. 
even when he was playing well, he was still three and a half rounds behind the the spot where he was drafted. When Mitchell Robinson was playing well, he was one round behind it. And that still wasn't that great with upside. So to me, also, by the way, worth noting, Mitchell Robinson, not as loud in the counting stats. 9.7 boards, that doesn't jump out at anybody. Just the blocks. That's the only thing people will notice with him. Julius Randle, everybody loves somebody that can score and rebound and pass. We overlook the other stuff. And there's name recognition. He's been around the NBA at that big year in New Orleans. So I think, and we'll know more, obviously, as we get to October, November, and we start to actually see ADPs for guys. But I think that if both of those guys take an ADP hit, the one that I would lean towards next year is Mitchell Robinson. And I also think that Mitchell Robinson takes the slightly bigger hit to his ADP because he doesn't have the scoring prowess of a Julius Randle, because he doesn't have the glistening popcorn stats that people love to lap up. He's got two categories. One of them people don't ever notice, and that's field goal percent. But infinite upside. And now, coming off of a down hype year. Julius Randle, not infinite upside. Is coming in off a down hype year, but not infinite upside. And that is your ever-exciting New York Knicks breakdown. I think we actually, you know for as lame as that team has been for some time now, I think we did find some pretty useful stuff in today's breakdown of the team. Uh, as far as a lesson learned for the Knicks, I mean, they're, look, if you put seven power forwards on a roster together, the lesson is probably don't draft them. <laughs> if your roster is 12 people and seven of them all play the same position, position you should probably not draft them. But Dan, doesn't that mean that the rest of the roster should have all had plenty of time at their particular spots? Yeah, it does. But they all have terrible fantasy games. And Reggie Bullock, who was one of the guys on that team that I thought, well, what if he gets what if he gets to go just chuck? He missed half of the year with injuries. So that never even stood a chance. Mo Harkless, if he's on that team the entire year, he might have actually gotten close to the top one hundred. You know, late-round plotter type, not one that you're rolling the dice on. We've had Harkless watch for too damn long. And then Bobby Portis, who does nothing besides score and rebound. He's he's fantasy useless. Wouldn't say it to his face. <laughs> Punch me into Europe. Hoping Mitchell Robinson takes a hit in drafts next year. Didn't have him anywhere this season. Had him everywhere the previous year when we got him pre-hype. Now, maybe we can get him again post-hype. We'll see. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Again, tomorrow we'll start to dive into how did they do? Not how did I do. We did that already. How did they do? We'll look at Yahoo's pre- and post-season numbers and uh, formulate a strategy going forward, our more aggressive strategy going forward. I'm at Dan Bespris on Twitter once again. Please do. Shoot a note if you want to be part of our team over here at Hoopla. I think people are starting to tune back into basketball now. So if you haven't been listening, we've got advertisements. I know, weird. Self-promotional ones at the front end of the podcast. Uh, so hopefully you guys didn't... I don't know if you can. You probably figured out how to skip it already. Please don't. 
listen to our good stuff. We're going to have more of those. We'll rotate them through. A lot of them will be introducing you to different team shows and what they've got going on on a given week. But uh, you don't need to know about that right now. Podcast is over. Enjoy your day. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.